Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to look at the book of Revelation. Today we look at the first half of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2. Alistair, hi, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Now, how do chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, fit into the book of Revelation? Well, in a number of ways. I think one of the first things to note is that we have seven letters to seven churches here, and the rest of the book could be read as one great letter to the church more generally or to the church more specifically in Jerusalem. And so these could maybe be read as mini revelation, mini apocalypses. And as we read it that way, we might also note that as we go through, there are all these different themes that will be picked up later in the great letter that the rest of the book represents. I think a further thing to note is that the book of Revelation has a lot of different callbacks to the Gospel of John. And as part of this overarching parallel with the Gospel of John, we see many of these within these letters to the churches here. And so for those reasons, I think these are integral parts of the wider letter. They present something of a bridge between the letter to the great church, as it were, of Jerusalem and to the rest of the churches. So all these other churches throughout the empire can see themselves represented within these seven churches and connect their destiny to that of the greater church. What's the purpose of the seven letters? The seven letters are, I think, one of the things they do is they expand the range to which the letter is addressed. We might, if we were reading the rest of the letter, see it merely as a Jerusalem-Judea issue. But this very clearly shows that this revolution in the heavens, as it were, has implications for the whole empire. It's going to shake everything up. And so that's one purpose. I think another thing is it gives different churches in different contexts, a lens through which to see the larger apocalypse as relating to them. This is not just something that concerns some vast archetypal reality. It meets the ground in different communities and in different ways. Is the fact that there are seven churches significant? I mean, is there a connection back perhaps to the seven days of creation? Well, it seems likely that there are a number of reasons for the sevens. Um, First of all, we have the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands with the seven lamps might suggest jubilee themes, seven times seven. And then the seven stands of the lampstand or the seven um, lights of the lampstand would also invite connections with things like the seven lights or stars in the hand of Jesus or some of the other connections that we have with the days of creation. Now, I think more specific connections can be drawn. I think we can see connections with the days of creation as we work through. Some of them will be stronger than others. But the first day, there's the focus on the tree of life and the lampstand. We could maybe see this as connected with the fact that the first day of creation is associated with the creation of the lampstand, which is connected also with the tree of life in various ways, in Exodus chapter 25, in the construction of the tabernacle. Christ is the light bearer. Light is associated with day one. Then we have the second day, the connections 
on the second day are less certain. Perhaps the division between death and life, the division of the firmament above and below, but not so clear. The third day, associated with land and sea and that great division and plants, and here we have stones and manna, and maybe the bronze altar might be alluded with the food sacrificed to idols, but I'm not so certain of that one. The fourth day, the heavenly lights and the oil for the lamp and the tabernacle in um, Exodus. And here the son of man is, or the son of God is presented as one with fiery eyes who promises rule in the morning star. So that would seem to fit quite well. And the fifth day is associated with priest garments in the order of the tabernacle. And it's associated with fish in the original creation. And here, the attention is given to the garments of the Church of Sardis. And again, that would seem to be a, a pretty strong connection. The sixth day, of course, connected with humanity, the establishment of the priesthood in um, Exodus. And here it's the way that the Philadelphians in verses 11 and 12, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, etc. This would seem to connect quite nicely with the um, garments of the high priest, which are associated with the sixth day. And the seventh day, rest and Sabbath. It's the promise of sitting and rest with Christ and his throne and eating with him in the wedding feast. And so, again, that would seem to be a nice connection with the days of creation. Some of them stronger than others, but it seems arguable. Um, there's a good case for there being connections with the days of creation. Mm. Where are the seven churches? The seven churches are scattered throughout um, Asia Minor. The order of them might suggest the order of a person bearing the messages. They would go through these different locations sequentially, and that would seem to be a sensible journey. So you could start off from Patmos and go to Ephesus first. Uh, there'd be the nearest church. And then you'd head north to Smyrna and then Pergamum and travel inland to the east to Thyatira, south to Sardis, further east to Philadelphia, and then southeast to Laodicea. And that sort of order would be a very natural movement. So they are, as it were, facing over against John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, and they are the churches of the um, of Asia Minor. Now, who are the angels of these seven churches? Who is John actually writing to, or Jesus writing to? Yes, um, this is something that commentators differ over. The messengers or angels of the seven churches could be read as angelic figures, but throughout the book of Revelation, we see the ways that angels are gradually replaced by human beings. And as Paul says elsewhere, we will one day judge angels. And so here it seems not unreasonable to see these angels of the seven churches as the guardians who are the pastors or overseers of the churches. And so they are the ones who are the messengers, the guardians, the overseers, and the ones who are particularly responsible for the corporate behavior of the bodies that they represent. I wonder in what sense these uh, seven letters are recreative words bringing forth some kind of new creation. Yes, the fact that there is seven of them, that there seem to be some sort of at least resonance with the order of the days of creation suggests a sort of 
creative word. Now, as we go through the letters, we can see all these different themes that maybe connect with the descriptions of the end of the book of the bride and the harlot. And thinking about those, we might see an anticipation of the bride within these texts. And that bride, of course, is the vision connected to the vision of the new creation. If the book is about new creation, and we have seven words here to seven churches, maybe it seems reasonable to see these as anticipations of the greater word of new creation that the rest of the book will bring. I wonder how each of the letters move through the history of the Old Testament, because it's been suggested that they do in the subjects that they cover. Yes, it's it's interesting when you look at some of the details and you're reading through, you might at different stages, have a sense of a resonance with a different period of the history of Israel or the church. And I don't think this is unreasonable. So, for instance, if you start off in the first letter to Ephesus, it describes the tree of life at the very end of the letter. And that, of course, harkens back to the Garden of Eden. Then the second letter talks about being thrown into prison before receiving a crown. we read a story like that in the book of Genesis as Joseph is thrown into prison and then he's raised up from prison and receives a crown. And the third letter, it's Balaam and Balak and the promise of hidden manna. That's the wilderness experience. It's the experience of um, the book of Numbers. These are all connected with that period of Israel's history. Jezebel and the rule of the nations that's promised to the Davidic king connects with the period of the kingdom, and that's the fourth of the letters. Then you have the soiled garments. We might think about the example of Joshua, the high priest, in the book of Zechariah, and that connects with the post-exilic period, the exile and the remnant. And then you have the restoration, Eliakim, and the anticipation of Cyrus as the one who opens doors, um, or the pillar in the rebuilt temple of God. Then you have the final one, which is maybe the Israel of the days of Christ. It's the ones who are unable to recognize their nakedness and blindness. So James Jordan and others have suggested that there is some sort of progress in the letters through eras of um, the history of Israel and the early church. Yeah, now each letter also repeats a feature of Jesus' glorified body, doesn't it? Perhaps we can deal with that as we move through the letters. Um, Let's come on to Ephesus. What's the significance of the way that Jesus is described here in the letter to Ephesus? Yes, he's described in a way that clearly calls back, as do other of the descriptions, to the opening vision. This is the description of Christ as a sort of priest, but also as a gardener in some ways. He's the one who's like the gardener walking through the lampstands. He's the one who tends them. And as the Lord walked through the Garden of Eden, Christ is like the gardener tending the trees or the lampstands. And he's the one who judges in that regard. We might think back to John 15 in the description of the vine, for instance. There is a sort of tending of the vine or the tending of the lampstand taking place here. And what does Jesus commend here in this letter? He commends three virtues and three actions that seem to be paralleled in some way. So their works, which seems to be corresponding with the fact that they can't bear those who are evil, and their toil, maybe 
associated with the fact that they have tested the false apostles and their patient endurance, the fact that they have endured patiently and they have not grown weary. Mm. In what ways does this letter to the church at Ephesus deal with false teaching? Because false teaching is a bit of a common theme throughout these letters, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's something that is described in different ways. And as we go through them, we can maybe see ways in which these descriptions connect with other figures in the Gospel of John and also in the book of Revelation. Um, So here they are the false teachers are the Nicolaitans. Um, it's not entirely clear who these people were, but they are associated with food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. It seems that there's some sort of compromise with pagan society here. Yes. And what does Jesus threaten to do to the church and or the pastor if, if he doesn't repent? The threat here is to remove the lampstand. Hmm. And that is one of the um, two letters where there is a such a serious threat. What we have in the letters is a sort of chiastic order where the first and the last letters have these greater warnings. The two letters within those, two and six, are positive throughout. And then the middle letters are a mixture of positive and negative. And the reward that Jesus mentions? The reward is connected with the themes of Eden, as we mentioned already. So it's to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, that connects with the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God and the tree of life within it, but also connects with the very end of the book of Revelation, where you do see the tree of life come up again in chapter 22, verse 2. And as you go through the letters, you can see the gifts that are promised connect with later elements of the book. So um, Smyrna, he shall not be hurt by the second death in chapter 20, verse 6. Um, on those, these the second death has no power. And then Pergamon, uh, you have the stone and the new name. And then in chapter 21, you have the names of the 12 apostles upon the stones of the city. Tharatira, you have the authority of the nations ruling with the rod of iron, the morning star. And you have all of those elements picked up in chapters 19 and and 22 verse 16 related to Christ. Um, Sardis clothed in white and name in the book of life. Again, you have those taken up in chapter 19 verse 14, 20 verse 12. Philadelphia, the open door that can't be shut, the pillar in the temple of God um, connected with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. All of these things appear in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And then Laodicea sitting on the throne. And of course, you see the throne of God and of the Lamb within the New Jerusalem in chapter 22. So these connections need to be borne in mind because there's a deep structural integrity within the book of Revelation and in its connections with the Gospel of John, which Warren Gage in particular has given attention to. And as we pay attention to these, a lot of the puzzles that we might otherwise have about the book will start to unravel and become a lot more evident, the logic of them. Okay, Smyrna, how is this letter connected to the life of Joseph in Genesis? So we've already noted that as we're going through, we're following something of a sequence that we can find within the covenant history. Here, the connection would seem to be with the being cast into prison and then tested and then raised up after a period of time. Ten days, it says here. 
And so that period of testing will be followed by vindication and receiving a crown of life, which, of course, connects quite strongly with the story of Joseph. And then, of course, the being mistreated by those who say that they are Jews might suggest the way that Joseph was mistreated by his brethren. Yeah. How is faithfulness rewarded or how will faithfulness be rewarded here in Smyrna? With the crown of life. And I think one of the things that we should note is that there is a common sequence to all of these letters. Each one of them has, there's a sort of template that the letters follow and the elements within them, you might think about the introduction. There's an introduction that introduces Christ in a particular way, the words of him who is the first and the last, or the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, picking up some element of the earlier vision. And then there's things that he knows about the church, and then judgments upon the church or blessings, and then um, a calling to respond in a particular way. Uh, What's going to happen when the Lord visits, and then the um, statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then the promise of a gift to the one who overcomes. And so that pattern is one that's repeated throughout the letters. Here, the promise is the crown of life, and the one who overcomes will be immune to the second death. Of course, that picks up elements of chapter 20, where you have the first resurrection. Mm. Uh, Okay, next, Pergamum. How does this letter relate to the Exodus wilderness period and perhaps to the third day of creation? So we can see within it the elements of the manna, perhaps in um, verse 17, and the white stone, some have suggested, the Urim and the Thummim, perhaps. We also have the fact that there are Balaam and Balak here who are present in the book of Numbers. And so that sequence of the wilderness period would seem to be alluded to here. What does the um, church and the pastor at Pergamum have to repent of? What's the great threat to the church at Pergamum? That they have held the teaching of the um, Nicolaitans, and they have also fallen prey to the sort of teaching that you have with Balaam and Balak. Um, You might think of Balaam and Balak in terms of the false prophet and the beast that we encounter later on. This is a sort of false prophet in Balaam and Balak as the beast who is assisted by the false prophet. And so what we have again is a sort of apocalypse in miniature where figures that are associated with the larger apocalypse appear in some smaller form. What's the significance of the hidden manner, the the white stone and the new name written on the stone there in chapter 2, verse 17? Because they're all all immensely significant, aren't they? Yeah, so in the um, Ark of the Covenant, there is the manner placed in Exodus chapter 16. You have the manner placed before the Lord. You have this special token of the Lord's provision for his people within the wilderness experience. And the hidden manner would suggest um, some connection with that. But then, of course, within the Gospel of John, we have the manner connected with Christ and the gift of Christ and his body and blood as food and drink for the people of God. And so maybe we could connect it with that as well. Christ ultimately is the bread of God. He's the hidden manner. He's the one who is the bread from heaven who's given so that we might enjoy life. And the white stone There are a number of ways that we could understand this. I think one of the main things to note is that the new name written upon the stone, that 
there seems to be some sort of connection with the end of Revelation where the stones are written, uh, the names are written upon the stones of the city. The name written upon the stone, it might be the Urim and Thummim. It might be connected with um, the garments of the high priest and the way that he had some, uh, the name written upon him um, that was placed. And so those are some of the possible connections that have been suggested. Final uh, church in this section, Thyatira. Why does the description of Jesus in this letter refer to his flaming eyes and his feet like burnished bronze? Again, this would seem to hark back to the vision that we have in chapter one, but also to the vision that we have in Daniel chapter 10, verse six, um, the way that the figure and by the river Tigris is described. And that description describes one who has a face with the appearance of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and sound of words like the sound of a multitude. And so there are elements of that being picked up here, as in the preceding chapter. What does Jesus both commend and condemn in this church? So he knows their works, their faith and love and service and endurance, and indeed their works more recently have exceeded those even at the beginning but their toleration of jezebel is the thing that they're called out for and so she's a false prophet prophetess and she's seducing them to sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols now this connects with some of the figures that we've seen balaam and balak the nicolaitans but it also these figures make us perhaps think of the figure that we find at the end of the book, this seems this Jezebel figure might make us think of the harlot and Babylon that we find in chapter 17 and following. And uh, I suppose an echo there with Jezebel of the ministry of Elijah following through the Old Testament, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, final question. We're just about out of time on this one. What sorts of judgment and reward does Jesus promise the church here? He's going to judge um, Jezebel and those associated with her, and he's going to vindicate the rest of them. I think you can see that um, they are given the assurance that he will come and they have to hold fast until then. And then he's going to give them authority over the nations. We can think of this as the Davidic promise that we find in Psalm 2 and elsewhere, the rule over the nations, ruling them with the rod of iron. These, again, are themes that we find later on within the book as Christ is established in his rule. And so the authority that he receives from his father, he will give to his people as they are faithful. And then also the promise of the morning star. Again, these are things that connect with the earlier vision and they connect with the later themes of the book. So the book of Revelation is a dense and deeply interconnected book. It's connected back to the book of John as well. We might think at the very end of John, as Warren Gage has pointed out, you have Christ out from the land calling across to seven disciples, or seven disciples who are out from the land. He's on the shore. And here we have John calling out to seven churches. John is the one who's speaking um, as the one who's bearing the word of the Lord here. And so this word of Christ to the seven churches might recall the word of Christ to the seven disciples over the sea um, at the end of John, um, mm. John chapter 21. Mm. 
Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. It's been great to be with you again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>